When you talk to Dan Kamen, he's pretty much a normal guy. Aside from the fact he's a Nobel laureate. More on that. So I'm Dan Kamen. I'm a faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, where I'm the chair of the Energy and Resources Group. And I am also a faculty in the Department of Nuclear Engineering. You have joined us on Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. And I run the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory, RAIL. Mm -hmm. um, and through RAIL, I've worked at the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I've been a, a lead author there since the late 1990s. There, Dan and his team from UC Berkeley's RAIL Laboratory, R-A-E-L, wrote the protocols. More on that, too. And then I wear a second hat in that I am now back in federal service, like I was under President Obama when I was science envoy in the State Department. Now I've returned to DC as the senior energy advisor at the US Agency for National Development. It was Rail, however, that led him to the UN, where as lead author, his team was notably awarded the prestigious Nobel Prize. Wow, that's quite a portfolio. Those are my hats. Yeah. Can you take us back to, I guess you said the 90s and the beginning of your work with IPCC and RAIL and how that, how did that come about? I started working with the IPCC when I was junior faculty at Princeton University, where I was in their environmental institute. The name has changed a little bit since then, but I got involved um, in my role as someone working on the expansion of the clean energy industry. So I was involved in both uh, several of the big every five year assessment reports. And then in the interim years, there would be more topical uh, reports. I was, it was involved in a big effort on technology transfer and international partnership. And I guess if one really ties all the knots together, that effort, the international partnership on technology transfer, that was a request by China and India and others to work out a framework, um, very slowly and indirectly led up to the point in this most recent climate summit in Glasgow, COP26, where for the first time, the industrialized nations ticked over the commitment level that we made in Paris, and that was to be at the 100 billion a year level of partnership with industrializing countries. And of course, some countries have now evolved into and through and out of those definitions. Um, you know, now Chile and Kenya and Malaysia are now middle-income countries. China and India are always in their own special category. But what happened in Glasgow was that we hit that level once, and now optimists say, well, we've hit it, that's great, and now we will you know, be much better partners with emerging economies. Skeptics will say, well, you hit it once, but can you do 100 billion a year consistently? And we all know that 100 billion is unfortunately a drop in the bucket. It's a big milestone in terms of meeting some obligations made in Paris. The real question is, how does this expand? He also spent a year at the World Bank, 
as Director of Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Projects. What I do now in my federal role ties back to that early work at the IPCC. It ties back to the work I did when I was uh, at the World Bank for a year in 2010-11 as the Director of Renewables and my time uh, previously in the State Department, and that is to build operational partnerships around investing dramatically in clean energy, not just to ramp up the amount of clean energy in the mix around the world, but to replace current fossil generation and future demand. We're calling this episode, The State of the World on Climate. From my perspective, some of the most exciting announcements made in Glasgow was that both South Africa and Nigeria each said they were going to commit to um, a transition to clean energy. While it's a big deal for China, they're the biggest consumer and importer of coal, they're also a rich country by most definitions, um, whereas Nigeria and South Africa are fossil fuel dependent economies where the unemployment story alone of doing this transition without really significant build of new industries, international partnerships is really hard. So that's something- Now when you said a hundred billion, you're talking about investment, right? Well, unfortunately it's not as simple as that. So the Paris commitment was for there to be a hundred billion a year in, in, in funding for the energy transition in industrializing countries. Some of that is aid, some of that is grant, some of that is bringing in private sector partners, foundations. So it's unfortunately not an easy kitty to add up. I think maybe on the optimistic side, you probably don't want it to be a simple kitty. You want it to be a lot of different aspects of economies being invested in. The problem is for those two countries alone, the price tag for the transitions is on the order of hundreds of billions. That's just two countries. And doing so without massive unemployment dislocation um, is gonna be challenging. In South Africa, they need to retire a very large fleet of old dirty coal plants on the order of 22,000 megawatts or more. Nigeria, of course, is a oil and gas exporter um, and has taken on more and more prominence um, as a partner with the US and elsewhere in terms of those exports. So finding ways to do enough investment so that the clean energy sector can take off, um, large scale solar, smaller distributed solar, energy storage, electric vehicle programs, smart agriculture based around solar water pumps, not diesel water pumps, um, organic fertilizer production instead of nitrogen, fossil fuel nitrogen efforts. All of those things count, but adding up that inventory is both messy and still has a massive way to go where the bulk of the money isn't even being thought of yet. Well, it sounds like you're you're veering back into the banking world with this conversation. I keep and trying I to say to that I'm, I'm, a, your... I'm a simple physicist. Banking is something I, I intentionally know very little about, but I think you're probably right that a lot of this story is really about developing financing streams for renewable projects mm -hmm. at scale in a way that 
the capacity can be taken over by local firms, ministries, town councils. That's hard. What is the role specifically of the World Bank? Do they help set policy with regard to development in sensitive areas, for example, or preserving wildlife habitat or energy um, policy? Can you give us a snapshot? The World Bank um, worked through a process to ramp up dramatically the amount of large-scale infrastructure investment efforts, uh, larger-scale transmission projects. When I was at the bank, one of the big projects I worked on was to finance and now put into operation um, a significant transmission corridor between Kenya and Ethiopia um, that links hydropower in Ethiopia to wind and geothermal in Kenya to really build a regional market. The old adage about the bank is definitely true. The, the bank is a fund and the fund is a bank, meaning that the World Bank is much more of a, um, a fund to draw on and a learning opportunity for people who are going to go back into public service in their home countries and ministries. And the International Finance Corporation is really more of a bank. And so on the policy level, the World Bank has adopted a cost of carbon. They use $30 a ton. It's a higher price than we actually use in California in the market sense. But if you're a critic, you look at it and say, well, that's, it's great on paper um, and it gets applied in some project cases, but there are many, many areas that are exemptions where there's critical need, where there's um, big unemployment problems, um, such as in the coal sector in South Africa, um, I would say it is a softly applied um, price on carbon. But but it's a big policy step forward and it, all, it also enables international partners, local governments to utilize accounting where we now know that if you do it all right, renewables will come out as the as, as the cheapest project. Arguably, even without a cost of carbon, but certainly with a cost of carbon, mm -hmm. the price of renewables plus storage will be less than fossil projects. Dan swaps hats to explain the perspective of his new position at USAID giving voice to his analysis of the vulnerability of people and the importance of environmental justice and climate equity. Well, looking at COP26, there was a lot of concern about skewing the playing field and specifically with regard to Australia and coal, for example, which was the subject of a major article in The Guardian. So does the energy industry put a hand on this market or on this process of uh, decarbonizing that in a way that's not healthy or unproductive, or can we trust them? Well, we definitely can't trust them. And that, that hand is heavy. In fact, at the G20 meeting right before COP26, very disappointing to many people, myself included, the G20 chose not to follow through on their prior pledge to end subsidies for fossil fuels. And those subsidies, depending whose math you use, are somewhere between half a trillion and five trillion a year. I tend to use the one trillion number um, as 
the direct subsidies um, that exist at the pump in terms of refining and concessions. Um, and at that level, it means that the global community is subsidizing fossil fuels at least as much and if not more than the global community is investing in renewables. And that's even before the actual hardware, mm -hmm. that's just the subsidy level. So right. the playing field remains incredibly tilted against renewables, even though we get report after report, uh, maybe the most famous one was the thing that, that Bloomberg announced last year, um, put in a very nice way, they, they found that it's now cheaper to build a renewable energy project essentially anywhere in the world than it is to simply operate an existing fossil fuel project. But in many cases, those existing fossil fuel projects are the recipients of those subsidies. And so the, the, the playing field is very much tilted towards the fossil incumbents. Well, we've had some missteps with renewables too. You know, it, it appears from the outsider's perspective, and I'll just say that, you know, as a journalist or observer or filmmaker, are you familiar with a project called Ivanpah? I am very familiar with Ivanpah. It's a California project, so yeah. Right. <laughs> Ivanpah came in over cost significantly. Its siting was going to be in an ecologically very sensitive zone. The company did a lot of work at that initial site. Um, and then the, the prohibition because of desert tortoise meant they had to find a new site. Where it is today, it's an operating facility. It's the, it may not be the largest renewable project anymore, but of course, when it was built, it was. Now we have Solar One and a variety of others. And so I would say in the end, Ivanpah is a real success as the first of its kind and as the one that the regulators and the companies had to sort of come together, um, come to Jesus, if you will, on the environmental impacts, the impacts on, on indigenous people's land. Um, it's never going to look like one that was financially a winner from day one, but we're now seeing large scale projects, you know, these, these kind of thousand megawatt scale projects, mm -hmm. solar thermal, wind projects, big solar projects now being built. I think we're all waiting for what happens with Build Back Better. And right now it's on hold because of uh, votes in the Senate. Um, and you know, we have an election coming up, unfortunately, this year in the United States. Election seasons now last uh, exceedingly long time by some people's standards uh, almost all the time. Um, but if Build Back Better can get through, it means more funding and more policies leaning toward these large scale renewable projects both in the US and internationally. There's a piece of Build Back Better called Build Back Better World, international partnerships. And right now the US is launching various substantive engagements. Lead countries, South Africa, Nigeria, Argentina, Chile, Indonesia, Egypt, um, where there's analytic work, there's plans around financing that We'll need that next push of money. And if you're a pessimist, you think that, you know, it's the Joe Man Senator Mansions of the world that are holding us back from, uh, from passing it. Uh, if you're an optimist, you think, well, there needs to be some combination of the jobs, benefits of clean energy, the social and racial justice aspects of clean energy that will be appealing enough that a few, one doesn't need many Republican senators to decide 
the economic upstory is high enough that they're willing to weather the attack from the right wing of the Republican Party mm -hmm. to support. And we now have enough U.S. states that have made commitments that I would, I'd like to think that there's a, there's a bigger chance now. New Mexico, Washington State, California, New York, um, 11 states now have zero carbon objectives that have gone through their legislative or um, or executive process so that we have mid-century or before goals to be carbon negative. Well, I know Ivanpah had problems with cooling. And that project, as well as one of Warren Buffett's projects in the Mojave Desert, wound up being subsidized or augmented by fossil fuels, natural gas from Southwest Gas in Las Vegas, in the case of Ivanpah. Right. That's why I asked what went wrong there. So how does the public trust become augmented in this environment where there's uh, uncertainty around technology, finance, and, and other matters? It's really the, the kind of the, the public reporting, the kick the tires aspect. And that's why I said that um, Ivanpah, which was the first of these mega projects to go through, did mm -hmm. have natural gas as part of the planning. Um, you know, now the ability to do not fossil gas, but green gas from urban waste from Las Vegas and elsewhere is part of, a part of the, the, the opportunities there. But this is now, a, you know, this is a project now with more than a 10-year run. And the cost of renewables has dropped sufficiently that you can now do this with air cooling, not water cooling. Um, if you if you pick the solar thermal route, um, like Ivanpah, but most groups now would probably pick solar photovoltaics right. and storage just because their costs have come down so much. So these thousand megawatt, these gigawatt scale projects don't need to have that component built in on Build Back Better on the national level, but not in California, is the electric vehicle demand for that power is now a really important driver because early on, the only off-taking was what is the demand for energy in the big markets, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Fresno, et cetera, for the case of Ivanpah. Now we have enough electric vehicles coming online. Um, California has over a million electric vehicles. Norway is actually getting very close to no new, no new sale of internal combustion. California has said, we will prohibit the sale of new combustion vehicles by 2035. And there's a real dialogue around moving that date forward. And interestingly enough, California a month ago, Governor Newsom announced a $10 billion investment in electric vehicles. Any power which is not directly needed on the grid can now be essentially used to charge up those electric vehicles. The worry was that you install more and more solar, for example, and the marginal value, the marginal cost of that solar drops and drops and drops during the day because our demand is met, so you have to store it. Store it. Well, now with aggressive electric vehicle programs, California, now New York State, we're seeing them being discussed in Massachusetts and elsewhere. There are new markets 
and those new markets can be for that clean energy. And so this is what I mean by there is now a significant demand base of states that are looking at clean energy by 2050 or earlier. California's is 2045 right now. I'd like to see that move forward a full decade. Um, there are now demands ramping up where clean energy is the thing that, that really makes sense in that mix. And so that mm -hmm. makes the economic case more private sector funding will hopefully crowd in. We're seeing a whole new generation of 10, 20, 30 megawatt solar projects cropping up. As I was just looking at low income housing areas, they were using excess land to do grid tied solar. And so this, this is the growth in that clean energy economy that's going to be needed because there's no amount of public money that can finance the transition. This has to ultimately come from the private sector. The Public Utilities Commission is looking quite seriously at um, basically adding tariffs to solar installers, both residential and commercial, that the solar industry said, well, th this would dramatically um, slow the installation of new and actually be, be applying this also um, retroactively to existing ones. And so this would be a real damper on the industry right at the time when you want to take it off. And so that net metering mm -hmm. battle is ongoing. It had a it had a very public hearing a few weeks ago where there was what 10 hours of, 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 of public um, testament uh, hearing materials. The PUC said they were going to put the decision on hold. If you're an optimist, you say, well, that's a great step forward because they were going to likely pass it. Now it's going to be sitting on hold. If you're a pessimist, you say, well, you put it on hold and then maybe you try to push it ahead at some time when there's less pressure. Although I think that the public has been really sensitized that this makes no sense to walk back solar standards. And other states are looking at California as they figure out how to integrate solar in, trying to balance the need to make it so that residents and businesses that install solar can sell their excess into the grid, which both finances more, but also makes this a resource that um, utilities sort of plan out. And the utilities concern that um, the so-called best customers are utility defecting. And you know, depending which state, which public utilities commission, which utility, the stories vary, but that's a pretty consistent battle over solar that's going around the country where utilities are not doing all they can to push it ahead. And it's requiring you know, public sentiment. It's requiring push by environmental groups. Again, I, I think the big lever would be if Build Back Better passes, then the funding for this on the federal level increases to the point that um, utilities around the country, even for states that don't have aggressive environmental laws right now, will see this as a job, as the job creator. Well, here's another business type question. So are the financial um, interests of the utilities compatible with a renewable distributed energy uh, supply? Well, well, they are if they, if, if they get modern in the sense that utilities are used to a very secure, very traditional business model where they were paid um, handsomely for constructing plants, fossil or otherwise, um, as well as being the distribution company. The new world of much more distributed energy and the utilities 
building some large-scale facilities, um, arguably um, some of these large solar and wind facilities, but also storage, um, mm -hmm. where they're paid more like eBay is. They're paid on the transaction. And if they're paid more on the transaction, then they, they don't have the incentives to push for more fossil projects. They can be the arbiter of a new clean green. Some utilities are right. likely to seize that and kind of become agents of clean energy. Others are actually likely to, you know, to battle this to the end and face, I would say, continuing and worsening issues on the balance sheet. Um, utilities don't generally go bankrupt in the United States and stay there. Um, we tend to bail them out because they are public services and there's a huge justice issue, which we haven't got to yet, but I suspect we will. But it's really going to be this question of which utilities step up their game and become enablers of not only clean electricity, but also clean consumption, moving away from um, natural gas in homes and businesses, induction cooking, uh, heat pumps, and also to, to really recognizing that there's huge profits for them if they enable electrification of vehicles. Essentially, all of the revenue that goes to oil and gas companies is revenue that utilities could capture if they become agents of green not agents of greed. This has been episode 14, The State of the World on Climate. Climate Change is Here, podcast series featuring UC Berkeley physicist and Nobel laureate, Daniel M. Kamen. You can virtually locate Climate Change is Here on Apple Podcasts and at climatechangeishere.com. Dr. Kamen returns for episode 15, What If We Save the Planet and Leave the World Behind? A conversation about environmental justice. Thank you to the Greenbelt Society, Hunter College, and Pratt Institute. This is your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist.